Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Gus Tafoya, in for Stephen Spitz. On today's show, we listen back to an interview of Stevens with author Christopher Hitchens about his book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. As Hitchens writes, Kissinger was celebrated for his diplomacy, but also criticized for his alleged involvement in treason, murder, and torture. Kissinger died at age 100 on November 29th of this year. We hope you enjoy the show. What drew you to write a book about Henry Kissinger? Well, there are two things. One is I've been a longtime student of his one-man rolling international crime wave uh, of a career, and I started monitoring that when he made himself responsible for a terrible war in Cyprus, in the eastern Mediterranean, in 1974, which a lot of people don't remember. Though by then I already had my suspicions about him because of his performance in uh, Indochina and in Chile and elsewhere. So I had a, a feeling that he was getting away with a lot. And by the way, one of the things when you say getting away with a lot that you often mean is getting away with murder, which is often used as a metaphor but can be used literally as I, as I use it for him. Ever since the arrest of Augusto Pinochet in London a couple of years ago, and the swearing out of the warrant internationally for the arrest of Slobodan Milosevic, and some other quite interesting recent cases in Rwanda and Argentina and France. We, we live in a changed world where uh, powerful people who have committed crimes against humanity don't have legal immunity anymore. So the exact reason why I wrote the book was to point out to people that this period had now arrived and that, it, yes, that it did apply to Henry Kissinger too. Um, and, and, I, and I want to get right into your book, but one of the things that really interests me and you, that you may have a view on is what's the attraction of Kissinger to, he, he seems to be venerated by people like Ted Koppel, Charlie Rose, Republicans and Democrats alike in this country. What is it about this man that, that has made him so attractive to virtually every group in this country? Ah, well, uh, uh, look, you, you, you encourage me to get onto my favorite subject, which is that part of the book is an attack on my own profession, the profession of journalism. Maybe it's not really a profession, maybe it's just a craft or perhaps a racket, but anyway, it's appalling to me that, as you say, um, the Los Angeles Times runs a syndicated column by the guy, uh, picked up in my hometown paper, the Washington Post, where even when he's writing about China, where he has a declared financial interest, he's represented as a China expert and former Secretary of State. Uh, Mr. Koppel fawns on him. Mr. Rose has a tendency to be too lenient to him. He's been news consultant, objective, independent, neutral news consultant, you notice, to a number of networks and newspapers. Now, why is that? Well, it's for two reasons, I think, and neither, neither of them are good. One is this is a celebrity culture, and the press is the main organ of that celebrity culture. The essence of a celebrity culture is you take someone who's famous, and then you take them at their own valuation. You take them at their, their face value. Thus, you know, the Saudi Arabian monarchy is moderate Arab by definition, because it says it's Arab moderate. You never have to ask whether it really is. Bill Clinton was um, written up as the new Democrat, uh, because that's what he wanted people to say about him. And it saved time to just say, okay, let's grant him that much. Henry Kissinger is... A, a famous figure with an interest in foreign policy, so we'll ask him on and just ask his opinions without any investigation. This is a problem for the culture in general and not just with Kissinger. Well, how much of, it, of Kissinger's success is his own doing, his own self-promotion, do you think? 
Well, I think his only success is his self-promotion, because I don't think he would want to say that the war in Cambodia was a howling success, or the war in Vietnam, which he helped with Mr. Nixon uh, to prolong needlessly, and, and then ended it on the same terms that were available in 1968. Um, I don't think he would want to say that his policy of asphyxiating democracy in Chile, which has now come back to life for a few years, um, asphyxiating it, that's to say, for a few years, was a huge success. I don't think he'd want to say his policy in East Timor was a, a great success either. Generally speaking, his policies have led not just to what I think of as illegal and immoral violations of human rights and human dignity and crimes against humanity, but they've also been what would normally be called fiascos. It's not real politique, in other words. Real politique can't really be his defense. Well, he comes across as this major balance of power advocate that always seems to uh, have this view that by balancing one side against the other, the United States will come out on top. Yes, and um, that's a very old idea, borrowed basically exactly. from the British Empire. Um, the United States was supposed to be a country different from that, by the way. I paused to remark. It wasn't supposed to have an empire, for one thing, to begin with. If you have an empire, of course, you do have to do trade-offs. Um, but I believe it's, you know, it needs to be asked, well, should one be in, in, involving oneself in the affairs of everybody else's country, often by surreptitious or violent or uh, subversive means? But in, in point of fact, I don't think his trade-offs were that good. For instance, um, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn came to the United States, having been thrown out of the USSR, and came here as the great cultural and literary hero of the anti-communist resistance, and Kissinger's whole justification for what he'd been doing in Chile and Cambodia and elsewhere was fighting Russian expansionism. Well, it was thought that Gerald Ford should invite Solzhenitsyn into the White House, and uh, Kissinger said, no way. Um, I really think, Mr. President, you shouldn't have him here. It would complicate and upset my relations with Leonid Brezhnev, with whom I'm trying to nego negotiate actually a very um, unstable arms control treaty. This is this is not really real politique. It's much more like short-term, media-dominated, reputation-dominated, uh, news cycle-determined cynicism. It, in other words, none of its none of its results have held up well, and very few of them would would bear examination. People would be revolted if they knew what had gone on. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating point. But if you if you don't mind, I'd like to turn to Chile because so many of our listeners here here in New Mexico. Follow the, followed the situation in Chile and, f and, and followed the overthrow of Allende's uh, uh, legitimately elected uh, government. And I wonder if you could just outline for us what uh, Henry Kissinger's involvement, early involvement, was with the attempted overthrow of Allende. I, I would be much more than delighted to do that, but I wonder if I can ask you something. S certainly. Since we're talking about interventions in elections, and since le the legitimacy of American elections is a big issue at the moment as well. I knew I was going to enjoy this conversation. Well, would I, could, would I be able to say a few words? I'm not by any means ducking your Chile question. I can't wait to get to it. But can one say a few words about the election of 1968, the, the, about which some terrible new disclosures have just been made? The, the Nixon's election in 68. Well, it turned out to be his election, yes. yes. Absolutely. But, Please do. Well, um, in my book I point out that there are now enough documents to make it a certainty that Richard Nixon did go to the South Vietnamese military leadership in 1968 and tell them privately and secretly 
and he had to do it privately and secretly because what he was doing was illegal under the Logan Act. You can't conduct secret diplomacy as a private U.S. citizen with a foreign power while the U.S. is officially negotiating with it, and, and everyone can see why that would be. He went to them and said, if you will withdraw from the peace talks, which are the main, the main point of the Democrats' re-election program, the Johnson-Humphrey uh, campaign, if you'll do that, and if you'll do it at the apt moment, then if we win, you'll get a much better deal from us. We will, we will prolong the war for you. People used to say that's a conspiracy theory and mm -hmm. so on. I'll just, I haven't time to say everything, but anyone who picks up my book can find the FBI transcripts of the bugging of Nixon's plane and Nixon's campaign headquarters that year, um, which was done by the FBI for Mr. Johnson, who was embarrassed to do it, but did do it. Probably broke the law in doing it. Um, nonetheless, we have the evidence. And it is true that Nixon did do that. And it is also true that Henry Kissinger was leaking to Nixon from the Paris peace talks, the official talks themselves, exact advanced knowledge of what the U.S. negotiating position would be. In I other mean, words, it was a terrible things... sabotage of the election. And It sounds like treachery. I mean, it sounds like Well, if it, if it, if that's what it was called by Clark Clifford, the then Secretary of Defense, and many people since who've written about it, that it was treason with a capital T. Um, unfortunately, the Johnson administration didn't didn't want to reveal its sources and didn't press the point. So let's say it's what it sounds like to anyone who's listening to this. But it, but it isn't a speculation anymore. It, it did happen. Now, not only did that subvert and derail an American election process and a very important American um, negotiating process, it also prolonged the war for more than four years. And I was thinking this week, looking at what happened to Bob Kerry, everything that happened to him happened after 68. And everything that happened to the people he killed happened after 68. He lost his leg after 68. He killed a dozen innocent civilians after 68. By, by 68, the war was over. The United States government, McNamara, all the people who started the war had admitted at least to themselves it was, it was, it was, it was done. It was, the only thing to do was to fold it. The way that it was prolonged and the people who were killed after that artificial, secret, illegal prolongation cry out for justice. And that's what I say in my book. I say, it, I don't mind if it sounds emotional, justice should be done to the people who were the victims of that appalling process. And that includes more than 20,000 of the names on the Vietnam War, and perhaps half of the three million Vietnamese and million and a half Cambodians. Let, let me just mention to those listeners who just joined us that uh, I'm talking to Christopher Hitchens today about his book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger. This is Friday Forum, and my name's Stephen Spitz. So I, I take it what you're saying is that Nixon indirectly went to President Thu of South Vietnam and well, said... No, not indirectly, direct, but secretly and through secret, a back channel, yes. And, and said, you'll get a better deal if you uh, don't settle now and, and wait for me to be elected. Well, that's exactly what he and um, two other people, uh, John Mitchell and Spiro Agnew, were involved in doing. Uh, John Mitchell later became the Attorney General and Spiro Agnew later became... Vice President, and I'm sure most of your listeners will remember that all three of these men were in one way or another either indicted or removed from office. John Mitchell actually became the first U.S. Attorney General to go to jail. And maybe you could elaborate on, 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 Kiss, um, on Henry Kissinger's. Kissinger. Of the four people involved in that episode in 68, is the only one who survives unindicted and indeed uncondemned by public opinion because they don't yet know. So I make this point to you only to say that the uh, destruction of or subversion of democracy in other people's countries and the use of warfare as a foreign policy tool, covert action warfare, has a big effect on American democracy too. And in the case of 68, all the democratic leadership would 
when they found out what Nixon had been doing and they listened to the tapes, were trembling with rage. They said, this is the most treacherous thing anyone has ever done in the history of the United States. But they didn't dare say what they knew because they'd have to they'd have to admit that they came by it through electronic surveillance. And they'd also, of course, have had to um, you know, risk a huge political crisis if they had mentioned and it. Could you be just a little more specific on what Henry Kissinger exactly did? Yes, Henry Kissinger was attached to the Paris negotiations, which were official and constitutional and legal and mandated. The designated U.S. negotiator with all parties to the Indochina conflict was Averill Harriman, the late Averill Harriman, of whom I must say I wasn't a fan, but that's not the point. I mean, he was, he was the official negotiator, and he had every right to assume no one else was negotiating with the Vietnamese but him. And um, I suppose the second most uh, well-known person of, of the team, uh, better known now than he was then, Richard Holbrook. Henry Kissinger, who was a friend of the Rockefeller family and was considered a liberal Republican and uh, in those days a bit of a peacenik, sort of attached himself as a friend and contact to these negotia- negotiations, as an observer, really, um, but used the occasion to supply secret information to the Nixon campaign, which meant that Nixon had a back channel both to Paris and to Saigon and was able to anticipate any negotiating moves that the U.S. government would make and to undercut them. And in point of fact, the South Vietnamese military uh, junta withdrew from the Paris peace talks very abruptly on exactly the 2nd of November 1968. It could have withdrawn at any one time, but it did it when the election was very tight and very close and when this removed from the Democrats' re-election with no chance of replacing it, the plank of um, uh, being the party of peace of the peace talks. So when you think of that and when you think of how many people were killed after 68 in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, I say in my book it's the wickest single action in American history, and I have so far not had anyone come forward either to say that's not true or that they can think of anything wickeder. Yeah, it's an amazing thing because you are not, you're being disloyal to the United States when you undercut its negotiating position in formal negotiations with well, the Well, indeed it is, and the reason why it, it was done so secretly and has been denied for so long and has only, the denial has only recently been overthrown by the release of these transcripts is that, of course, they knew at the time that what they were doing was both wrong and unlawful. And there is an American law, the Logan Act, that very explicitly prohibits it. That's not the least of the laws that Henry Kissinger has been involved in breaking. These are, these are transcripts? Uh, what transcripts are these? The, the FBI surveillance tapes. I mean, they, they, they listened on the telephone to Nixon's campaign headquarters and to the South Vietnamese embassy in Washington and to some of the intermediaries between the two, and they were able to bring to the president definite proof that, yes, there was a, a back-channel negotiation going on with one party to the American election running a secret campaign against the administration with the help of a foreign power. Well, you know, that is that is fantastically illegal, and as to what the moral judgment would be on it, I would leave it to your listeners to decide, but I would hope that no one listening now is someone who lost a relative in Indochina any time after the fall of 1968, because the thought of how that life was thrown away would be unbearable, I would imagine. Could we turn uh, to Chile, if you don't mind? No, I didn't want to avoid no, it. No, absolutely. I'm, and, and I should say... These well, are the so, t- within, so within a few years, mm-hmm. another election has occurred in, in Chile. And you know how we're always being told that peaceful, democratic, orderly transitions of power are the best. And um, some people wonder if these really happen as advertised in the U.S. They, perhaps they don't always, but at least we have the principle of that. Um, and the practice of it up to a point. The Chileans had it too. They were famous for it. They were the only country in Latin America who did have regular, predictable, 
peaceful democratic transitions of power, and the army stayed out of things. But when the army... This was a tradition. Uh, it, was, it was a very long tradition. It was envied by people in Bolivia and Paraguay and Argentina and Uruguay and uh, Brazil and so forth. It was unique and very, very... The Chileans, to this day, are very rightly proud of this. Tradition, they still have the tradition, but they can't claim they have it as an uninterrupted practice because in 1970, a party won the election that was too much to the left for the taste of Mr. Nixon and Mr. Kissinger. This they was a plurality that, that Allende won, correct? That was Dr. Salvador Allende mm -hmm. and his Popularity Coalition. Um, they said, no, these, these people, they may have won the election, but they're not going to be allowed to take power. Uh, we will interrupt the transition process, and we will do it with a campaign of assassination and bribery and subversion. And again, I can show in my book that Mr. Kissinger organized the, the disappearance of um, the head of the Chilean general staff, an honorable conservative officer named General René Schneider who was a constitutionally-minded man who thought that the Chilean armed forces took their oath only to the Constitution, didn't want to have any talk in the ranks about a coup. And so since a coup was what Messrs. Nixon and Kissinger wanted, the necessary next step was, well, then we remove General Schneider, who was assassinated in the street not long after, and we know now exactly who paid for that, how much they paid, how they sent the guns through the U.S. diplomatic bag to Santiago, how they covered up the very crime that they had incited and, and procured. And even we know the money, the, the amount of money, exact amount of money, they paid to the killers after the job was done. The killers, incidentally, were a group of extreme criminal uh, fascists um, who had tried before this to overthrow the Chilean conservative government, elected government from the right wing. So that's, that's what happened in Chile, and there's no doubt about it. We're not speculating here. How did you uncover this information? Well, it would be too much of a compliment to me to say that I uncovered it. I, I have been a friend for a long time, and I suppose I could say a very slight member of a group in Washington around the National Security Archive, some reporters at the Washington Post and the Institute for Policy Studies and elsewhere, who have brought suit under the Freedom of Information Act to have these documents disclosed. I, but I thought Kissinger had managed to keep secret virtually all of his documents. He did manage, by what I think was an unlawful means, to have his documents sequestered in the Library of Congress until after he's dead. But Congressman Hinchy, um, in the last uh, Congress, um, in the fall of last year, uh, did attach an amendment which uh, demanded that the CIA disclosed what it had done in Chile a quarter of a century before. After all, there's no national security risk in doing that now. And to our surprise, they actually released all the documents. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of finding out that everything you ever suspected was true, but that's the experience that those of us interested in this had. Everything we suspected or had ever alleged was not only confirmed, but the things were confirmed that we hadn't even accused them of. Uh, the Nixon group of that time. It's a it's a flat out lay down case now, and you can you I, all I've done in my book is summarize the work of other people. Well, if you've just joined us, uh, this is Friday Forum. My name is Stephen Spitz, and we're very pleased to be speaking today with Christopher Hitchens, who's written a book uh, called The Trial of Henry Kissinger. So I suppose, and I should reveal to you, uh, Christopher Hitchens, that I'm a lawyer. What's the evidence? The direct evidence that. Uh, Henry Kissinger was involved in the uh, kidnapping and murder of General Schneider. What? Well, you say kid <clears throat> kidnapping and murder. 
the, the, the direct evidence is the direct evidence. In other words, mm -hmm. it's the minutes of the meetings in Washington where he organized Schneider's removal. I don't myself think that the evidence will support the idea that it was kidnapping and or murder. I think they intended to have him whacked, hit. Who's they iced, now? You know, removed. Uh -huh. And the, the, kid, the kidnapping scheme would, was the cover story in case they were found out. In other words, if they were caught trying to kill him, they were going to say we were only trying to kidnap him. Um, but, of course, that's absurd on its face, because if you are found standing with a smoking gun over a corpse in the street, and the cops say, well, what's all this about? You say, well, I'm sorry, officer, but I was only trying to kidnap him. You don't really get off that way. Indeed, a crime committed in the course of a kidnap aggravates the offense in lots of ways, as it should. Yeah, it's called felony but it, murder. But it is true to say that until recently, until we had the exact proof of how the killers were paid off in large sums of U.S. currency after they'd committed the action, there were those, including Frank Church's, uh, Senator Church's Committee of Investigation, who half believed the kidnap story, that it was a kidnap that went wrong. But I, I don't think any grown-up person could read the evidence and conclude that that was right, because, for example, what were they going to do with him when they kidnapped him? N nothing, not a word is ever said about that. The people who were hired to do the kidnap were people who actually were professional killers. Um, were they ever told, is there, is there even a single cover story message saying to them, be careful you don't harm the guy while trying to kidnap him? When he's the head of the armed forces in a democratic country neighboring to the United States, with which the U.S. is not, not, not contiguous, but neighboring, um, with which the U.S. is not at war, has good diplomatic relations, and by which it cannot be threatened. You see what? It's even more, it's just as amazing in a sense if they say, we, we feel we have the right to kidnap anybody's chief of staff. But I don't, I don't, as it happens, believe the story, and I don't think anyone who reads the evidence I've assembled will believe it either. They were going to whack Schneider. And when you listen to, or rather when you read, uh, the tapes and the uh, minutes and the cables, um, it is like listening to the Gotti tapes. You're, what you're looking at is a, is a hit job. And, and uh, my understanding from, from Which reading your Which had no congressional authorization. <laughs> Uh, no authorization of any kind, as far as we know. The, the best evidence against Kissinger is that he authorized payment to these hitmen after the hit occurred. Is that correct? Well, it's not the best. It's the conclusive. The fact that they were paid off after they did the killing means that um, that, that establishes in law absolute complicity, aiding and abetting, accessory, before and after the fact, accomplice. It's as if if you if you have... If you can be found to have paid someone after they've killed someone you want killed, you are as guilty in law as the person pulling the trigger. And there's a good reason why that's true. Otherwise, anyone could pay anyone to kill anyone and then go off for a holiday somewhere and say, I, I, never, I wasn't there when the killing took place. Now, another thing that you in do... In other words, those who defend Kissinger in this way, mm -hmm. as some people still do, though with diminishing confidence, are revealing themselves to be, first, soft on crime, and second, soft on fascism. And you're suggesting this is sufficient evidence of a war crime so that, so that Kissinger could be tried well, for it? it? Yes, but in a, in a way, I'm in a strange position here. I do say he's guilty of war crimes and crimes against humanity, and the, these, can, these take place on a much vaster scale in Cambodia and East Timor and elsewhere, Certainly. in places where 
for horrible reasons, we don't even know the names of the people who were killed en masse. Strangely enough, the likeliest way that Henry Kissinger will get himself into legal trouble for his career, and he will, because there is going to be a uh, legal consequence to what he did, is for the smaller crimes where you don't need a new law. It, it was already illegal to commission and suborn and pay for and incite murder. So it may very well be on the microcosmic stuff that he gets himself entangled. And he's, we know, very frightened about the disclosures that have come from Chile because they mean that named individuals in a democratic country like Chile are able now to point to real documents that show that an American citizen ordered the killing of their husbands, fathers, and brothers. And they, they, they're going to bring a civil lawsuit. And, and people have been tried in Chile for these crimes, have they not? And every time those trials move an inch closer, the figure of Henry Kissinger begins to appear in the dock in Chile, too. Um, the, the, if uh, Mr. Pinochet is put on trial, if he ever really is, if he gets into the dock, um, it, it, it's only a, another step towards the subpoenaing or the request for extradition of Henry Kissinger. Well, and, and, you... and, and in my book, I have a tape of him talking to his publisher, expressing real alarm at the legal consequences of what he did in Chile, finally catching up to him. So he... The questions you're asking me, I understand, are, you know, for explicatory reasons. So I can, I can tell you what the background is. But Kissinger didn't need any of this when he read the uh, documents. He knew immediately he was in legal trouble. And, and you just alluded to an, another uh, involvement of Kissinger in Chile because he had knowledge and involvement of Pinochet's subsequent assassinations and murders also. Haven't you talked about that in your book? Yes, uh, I have. The Chilean death squad regime, in which later formed an alliance across America, across the southern cone of the Americas, with the p secret police of Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and I think Uruguay, in order to repress and hunt down and kill dissidents. And in a very celebrated case, um, the former uh, foreign minister of Chile, uh, Orlando Letelier, in Washington D.C., in rush hour traffic downtown. In October 1976, no foreign government has ever had the nerve to do anything so unbelievably atrocious on American soil. And can we trace that to Kissinger, that particular... Well, you can put it like this. You can trace it to Pinochet. We know that, we know that uh, Pinochet gave the order for the Chilean embassy to set off that car bomb in rush hour traffic in Washington and to kill one Chilean exile and one American friend of his, Ronnie Moffat, who was driving him at the time. They were both blown to pieces. As I say, that's still illegal. You don't need a new law to show that you know, another government can't do that in, in D.C. Um, I can't say that Kissinger was responsible for it. I can say that he, I can prove that he sat in the room with Pinochet a few weeks before that and heard Pinochet make threatening remarks about Letelier in Washington. Uh, I didn't say anything. Christopher, we have about 30 seconds or so oh, left. Uh, I, I'm wondering, do, do you see Warheim's trials moving beyond uh, trials of the victors to, to, uh, to situations more They've like... They've already moved beyond it. Pinochet wasn't a loser when he was arrested. He had a arranged himself in Chile what he thought was a, a, a safe immunity. Slobodan Milosevic, when he was uh, indicted for war crimes, was still... The, the leader of Serbia had yet to go to war in Kosovo. It's cheap to say that only the losers go. We're getting increasingly to the point where, no, the law applies to 
everybody and where there's universal jurisdiction for all courts in all democratic countries to proceed against those who violated human rights. You've been listening back to an interview by New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas host Stephen Spitz on KUNM-FM. Our show is produced by me, Gusta Foya. Lynn Shebecki is the executive producer. Podcasts of the show and archives of past shows are available at stephenspitz.com. Search Stephen Spitz. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.